All right, well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you've joined us. I'll just repeat for a minute what I just said. Thank you for social distancing. Thank you for washing your hands. Thanking you for taking time out of your weekend to come worship our Lord with us. And for those that are watching at home, we can't wait until we're all back together again. But until then, this is what is necessary. So we love you, we miss you. And uh, my prayer is that as a church, we're making sure that we're reaching out and that people's needs are met during this time. So uh, let's make sure we're praying for each other and doing those kind of things. We're in the second week of an Easter series and today is Palm Sunday. And I wanna share with you some thoughts about this moment in history. Last week we talked about how Jesus had this chiseled face towards Jerusalem and today we're actually gonna see his approach into Jerusalem. So let's start in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied. On one, no one has yet sat, untie it and bring it here. After carefully correcting his disciples that he says after he said these things he has just corrected his disciples about the nature of the kingdom of God and his mission he, he's basically told them my mission is I have to go to Jerusalem I have to do this Jesus is in Jericho it's the city of palms it's a a place in the desert that's actually an oasis and many of the priests who worked in the temple live there so the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was frequently traveled in this particular moment, about a week before he's going to the cross, he sees a man named Zacchaeus. A uh, little wee man was he in the tree, and he's there telling Zacchaeus. And, and so at some point during that, he, he decides, I have to go to Jerusalem. Time to make the climb, the Passover climb from Jericho up to Jerusalem. He's one week away from walking out of his tomb. Knowing full well what awaited him, knowing that he has to endure the cross, before he can receive the kingdom, Jesus went. In his suffering, we should admire, not really pity Jesus. He knew exactly what he was getting into. None of this was a surprise to him. He knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. He had his face set on it, remember? John eleven fifty seven. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so they could arrest him. People miss this. Jesus was a wanted man when he entered into Jerusalem that day. There was an all points bulletin out for Jesus. Anybody seen him, you need to let us know because we're going to arrest him. Oh, well, I think he's leading the parade. The guy on the donkey, I think that's him. He came into Jerusalem in the most public way he could come. They begin their journey to the temple. And I want to show you this photo so you get a sense of the climb from Jericho, which is down on the bottom right, all the way up to Jerusalem. It is a straight up climb. And if you look at this map, this is actually an interesting map because you can see Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. You can see the Jordan River on the right. Jericho is, is down in the valley there. Remember, Jericho was the first city that they crossed when they came across into the Promised Land. That was the area where they were. And the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem climbs about 3,000 feet in less than 10 miles. It's a straight up climb. When they talk about the Psalms being the Psalms of ascent that they would sing as they would go up to the temple, they were really ascending. They were probably huffing and puffing pretty well. Very common route here. 
Nazareth is up at the top. That's where Jesus was born, up on the top of the plateau, where, where Jesus lived, not where he was born. And these are the Judean hills. And, and right before you get to Jerusalem, you come up this mountain, and then you kind of come over this top. And as you get up there, there are these two cities, Bethany and Bethpage. And then all of a sudden, the city of Jerusalem just opens up for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Well, here's the deal. This road was really crowded. And it was more crowded than any other Passover that had ever seen people come to Jerusalem. You see, the prophets had foretold that this would be the very day that the Messiah would arrive at the temple. This wasn't a normal Passover. Many in Jerusalem that day were waiting for the Messiah, just like the wise men were waiting for the stars the night of Jesus' birth. The prophets had revealed that this day, this would be the day. So there's a buzz in the crowd already. In fact, unlike other Passovers, people began lining the road to Jerusalem like crowds at a parade. They were expecting their Messiah. Many carried palm leaves from Jericho. Palms were a messianic symbol. Waving palms was a sign of welcoming a king. As you begin to crest the climb from the east, you go into two cities, Bethany and Bethpage. They're suburbs, if you will. Bethany, the now home of his now alive friend Lazarus, if you remember. He's only about three miles from the city gates. He's coming up on the backside of the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples into the village, likely Bethany, for a colt, a colt that's never been ridden. And Jesus says, go get that colt and bring it to me. Jesus, once again, doing the common, uncommon, so commonly that you almost take it for granted. There really was a colt there, and it really hadn't been ridden, and it really was there. Right where he said it would be. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Not only was there a colt there, but the man asked exactly what Jesus said he would ask. And they gave them the answer, the Lord has need of it. Without even a hint of objection, the owners let him take the donkey. Now, a donkey for a poor family is, is like everything. Today, our Savior needs a colt. In the past, he had other needs. Before this, there was a time when he needed a boat. Before that, he, he needed a boy's lunch. The boat was a platform for preaching. The lunch was food for a miracle. In a week, he's going to borrow a grave for a little while. The Lord has need of it. What an interesting irony. The God who created everything, spoke everything into existence, himself has nothing. He's a king without even a donkey to his name. Not even enough money to rent one. As they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along and they spread their cloaks on the road. Imagine this sight, the long-awaited parade of the Messiah. It's got to be incredible, right? People are lining the streets knowing that today's the day the Messiah is coming. 
They expect the king to ride in Jerusalem on an Arabian horse full of a big parade, but instead he's perched on this little donkey, his legs dangling on each side, almost touching the ground. It's, it's almost comical. This is nothing like you would expect a king to arrive. No pomp, no ceremony. In fact, no concern of appearances at all. The symbolism, though, here is critical. Donkeys were ridden by priests and men of peace. If you rode a donkey in a war, you didn't get shot at because you were known to be a person of peace or a priest. If you arrived somewhere on a peace mission, you rode in on a donkey. It was important that you did not ride in on a horse because a horse would send the message that he's a king and a king of war. He's letting everyone in Jerusalem know that he is the Messiah, he's the king, but he's the prince of peace. Yet someone rushes up to Jesus and they pull off their cloak and they spread it on the ground in front of him. And they jump back into the crowd and then somebody else does it again. And before you know it, they've lined the road almost like a red carpet. They honored him with their garments. That meant a lot. Most people only had one set of clothes. To lay aside a small wardrobe to a man riding on a donkey and allow the donkey to go over them was really laying something down for a lot of these people. In a few days, they would be throwing dice for his clothes. The irony here is incredible. Yet on this day, a wave of excitement builds in the crowd in almost like a reverse wave, people bowing down to put their cloak down, others standing up, and the wave goes forward to Jerusalem. Young men climbing trees, pulling palms down. They're near the city of Palm and the Mount of Olives. And so olive branches, the sign of peace, were, were handed out. People likely, children likely, were throwing flowers in his path. It was a normal way to receive someone of importance to a big city. Picture that cult, though. Awkward at best when, when walking alone. Now plodding uphill, one step at a time, under the weight of Jesus. It's almost comical, but it brings great excitement to the crowd. They see prophecy unfolding in front of them. Many in the crowd begin to remember the words of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They recognized it. The crowd's like, today's the day the Messiah comes and look, Zechariah's prophecy is coming true right in front of our eyes. And the excitement in the crowd begins to build. They're going crazy at this point. This is the day that they're all presenting their lamb to the priests at the temple for inspection. Passover's coming. They have to have a perfect lamb for the sacrifice. They're all bringing their lamb so the priests can examine and say, yes, this is a lamb without fault. And now the Lamb of God is coming on the same path up that road to the priest, to the temple, and they're going to examine him as well. His face set like flint to Jerusalem. Just a mile or so away, he's about to be inspected and actually declared perfect. Three times, Pilate will tell the crowd, I find no fault in him. 
Crucify him. I find no fault in him. Crucify him. I find no fault in him. Three times. Three times is the number of distinction. It's the number in the Bible of completion. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He is an innocent, perfect lamb of God. But tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. So today, the king, the Messiah, arrives on the perfect day to present himself to the temple, to the priests, to the leaders, as the Lamb of God to take the place of sacrifice on Passover. But it's not just the cult that's bearing heavy weight on this day. The closer Jesus gets to the gate of Jerusalem, the heavier that weight begins to get. He's so near Jerusalem, but they're so far from him. The weight of that truth begins to weigh on him. The crowd begins to lift his spirits a bit. They're raising their hands. It's an extension of their hearts. They've seen his miracles. They've encountered the supernatural. They've experienced a taste of everything that he offers. Some reach out to him. Some in their spiritual hunger know he's the only one that can satisfy them. That's why they line the path today. That's why they put down cloaks and palm leaves. Their Messiah comes in a royal procession and they're welcoming their king. They tried to welcome their king before, but he wouldn't let them. If you remember, after he fed 5,000, he had to retreat to keep them from making him king. At a previous Passover, his family tried to pressure him into revealing that he was king, and he wouldn't do it. But this is the day. This is the day the Lord has decided the, the Messiah would present himself to the temple. This Passover is different. He picked a colt instead of a chariot to make sure Jesus, or that the uh, people in Jerusalem understood that he is the one Zechariah foretold. Jesus was forcing everyone out into the public. He forces the hands of the religious leaders. You want to put me under arrest? Here I am. Go ahead. His public arrival and his declaration as Messiah, everybody would now have to cast their vote publicly, including the Pharisees. By Jesus coming into town on this day, they could have no more secret meetings, no more secret plots. He was calling them out into the open. That's what Jesus does. They would have to confess him or curse him. They would have to crown him or kill him. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As he rounds the corner of the road near Jerusalem, there's a point in the road where the road begins to bend. The crowd sees him and they go crazy. And as he comes down this road, you can see that the temple is right in front of him. He's coming down the downside of the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. He's about a mile, mile and a half away from the city gates. To the right, those trees on the right, that's the Garden of Gethsemane. 
at the bottom of the hill. That's where he will be soon. But this road leads down from the Mount of Olives and winds its way around down and then comes up to the temple again. And the temple is where that dome is now, but the original temple was, was there and that's where Jesus began to see the city. As he rounds that corner, people realize what's happening. God is bringing his Messiah home. They begin to shout out messianic scriptures. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on heaven and glory in the highest. They are, they are stating and crying out messianic statements. They're claiming he is our Messiah. They are worshiping him. There's no worship leader here. It's spontaneous. A moment of worship from the hearts of people who just can't contain themselves. Their love is enough to lead them. Their joy is enough of a guide. Worship bursts out from the crowd. But here's the problem. The praises of Jesus always offend others. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees, the word they used, we call the Greek aorist imperative. It means, essentially, don't just silence them, publicly correct them for being wrong. Give them a stern public rebuke. And if they keep doing it, keep giving them a stern public rebuke. They're not asking him simply to silence the crowd. They're asking him to say they're wrong. Irony drips from Jesus' response here. He can't silence his disciples because if he did, creation would start worshiping him. If they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. This is the day the Lord made. This is a day that's unique. This is a day when the entire creation has been waiting too. Even inanimate creation understands events better than you leaders do. Jesus tells him, you're so blind, a rock knows what's going on. A pebble in the road seems to know what's going on, and you're clueless, and you're supposed to know. The idea of creation itself praising God may seem strange to us. It makes us a little bit nervous about people who worship creation or think creation is God. But the Bible speaks about this in several places. Trees, oceans, rivers, mountains, valleys, cattle, and creeping things, birds and fields, all give praise to God at various places. We also hear of Abel's blood crying out to God. Pharisees are like roaches that have been surprised by the light. A light that fully exposes them, who they are. They worry what would happen to them if this wave of excitement actually got into Jerusalem. Do you remember the foreshadowing here? About a thousand years before this, King David came up this road, bringing the presence of God to the temple of God with the Ark of the Covenant. He had a parade too. The king had a parade. The ark went in front, David and all the people went behind it, and David danced and danced in joy, and yes, maybe in his underwear, but he danced in joy, and he celebrated God, and he was so excited that he, the, the ark of the covenant, the presence of God was going to come to the temple that, that is now there. He's, he's dancing around, he's really excited, and guess what happens? 
His wife says, what are you doing? Why are you being so foolish? You see, the praise of Jesus always makes his enemies uncomfortable. It makes them object to the praise being offered. You see, because God inhabits the praises of his people. There's something about true worship of God that makes people feel uncomfortable, especially people who aren't Christians yet. This man, the Pharisees were concerned, is going to disrupt the solemn ritual of Passover. People are supposed to be quietly bringing their lamb up in a solemn way to the temple. And, and what's happening is this, this leader might impress these people that are easy to impress. They're not deep in their roots. He could sweep them away. At least that's what they tell people. What the Pharisees are really concerned about is themselves. They are experiencing what everyone experiences when the light of Jesus bursts through your darkness. Jesus always forces a decision. The Pharisees are really concerned that Jesus will call into question their motives, their integrity. He, he might make them look bad. He might undermine their authority and threaten their job security. Like hitting the wall in a marathon, the wave of enthusiasm doesn't wash over the Pharisees. Their hearts are not filled with joy, rather filled with judgment. From their hearts, their mouths speak, not praises, but a rebuke. Because Jesus won't rebuke them, they begin to try to do that. It made them know they were defeated. See, when Jesus came up that path on that donkey, the one thing the Pharisees knew is we're done. We're done. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining another, nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What we're afraid of has already happened. The world's already gone after him. Nothing tells Satan and his followers you're lost more than the praises of God ringing in their ears. Satan has lost because when God's people are really worshiping, their hearts and their minds are on him. They knew they were defeated. For them, though, they think the crowd is just misinformed. That their emotion is misguided, that their praise is just a huge mistake. A mistake they demand Jesus correct, but it's they that Jesus corrects. They stood silent while the crowd and everyone, it seems, shouted praise. It's tragic when you think about it. So much education and yet so little understanding. So much learning and yet so little life. So much leading and yet so little love. So much mind, so little heart. Now the donkey doesn't really care about any of this. Likely just glad the road's turning downhill. The weight seems to have lessened. To the right behind the walls is one of Jesus' favorite places, the Garden of Gethsemane. They can smell the aroma of the olives and the olive branches, and he'd be back in this garden very soon. As he looks up at the temple, though, he gets to a place in the road where 
the city just opens up in front of him. It's a beautiful place. He sees Herod's palace, the fort of Antonio. To almost everyone, this is a breathtaking sight, but to Jesus, this place is literally going to take his breath away. All of the emotion of the moment begins to erupt through Jesus. We're not told how long he wept or how hard, but the word Luke uses is a strong one, meaning uncontrollable and convulsive. Jesus gets to this point in the road and he begins sobbing. Luke doesn't say much about this, but there's a lot there. It's the 11th hour of the Jewish nation. Their leaders have rejected Jesus and most of the masses have followed their leaders, but there's still time. If they'll only take advantage of the opportunity in front of them, you see, he's going to present himself in the temple for the next seven days, five days, four days. And they have a chance to examine him too. And he's like, it's not too late. You can still receive me. Jesus shows us the heart of God, how even in the middle of judgment, judgment has to be pronounced. It's never done with happiness. There's weeping in the heart of God, even when his judgment is perfectly just, righteous, and necessary. What's behind these tears? An eternity full of grief. There's no way we can know the depths of God's pain in the moment Jesus is convulsing, sobbing. He's going to his death, a horrible, shameful, humiliating death. He knows the pain will be unbearable. The cloaks of honor will soon turn to cloaks of dishonor. The blessings of people will soon change to curses from people. Hands raised in praise today will soon be raised to vote for his crucifixion. Those shouting Hosanna will in just a few days shout crucify him. But knowing all that, that's not why Jesus is weeping this day. It's Jerusalem that's breaking his heart. When he walked on that path and the city of Jerusalem opened up, he lost it. He couldn't take it anymore. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. If you had only known this day, if you'd only read and understood what the prophet said, Jesus is telling them, this day, you should have known. The prophet said the Messiah would arrive today. How do we know that? Because Daniel, in his, his writings, said the Messiah Prince would come into Jerusalem 483 years on the Jewish calendar from the day of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah would come. Do you remember the story how they're in Babylon? And there's a point where there's a decree that goes out that says, okay, go home and rebuild the city. 
that was a specific day in Scripture. Everybody knows what that day is. Okay? Specific time. If you take the Jewish calendar and you go ahead 483 years to the day, guess what? You get exactly the day that the Messiah comes on Palm Sunday. Daniel had told people, wait for this day, 483 years, wait. The Jewish people have a 360 day calendar. Those who knew the scriptures, the Pharisees should have known. Those who knew the scriptures were lining the streets on that day because they knew it was the day. And Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem and saying, you should have recognized me. I did everything I was supposed to do and you missed it. The psalmist talked about this day when he said, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But on this day, Jesus is looking ahead to another day about 40 years into the future. When he says the Passover town will be full again, it'll be Passover. Everybody will be here. And the Romans will surround it. And they'll keep anyone from leaving and anyone from coming in. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Jesus is looking ahead. It's 30, roughly 30 AD. He's looking at 70 AD, and he's like, there's a day coming. Because you rejected me today, something's going to happen. Jesus sees that day. He sees the bloodshed. He sees the tortured cries. He cries because he feels their pain. They're going to eat the leather of their shoes. Many will starve. By August, the Romans will finally storm what's left of the city and destroy every bit of the temple, and over a million Jewish people will die. That's what he's crying about. That's what he's sobbing about. And it's all going to occur because they rejected the Messiah. Jump ahead about 50 years. Josephus, the Roman historian, writes this about the day that Jesus spoke about, about five to 10 years after the event. All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by the famine and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplace like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards they could not do that. They had to cast them down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When the Roman Emperor Titus on his rounds along those valleys saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heave, God called to witness this was not his doing. I wonder when Jesus was stopped at that moment and began sobbing, I wonder how far forward he really looked. You see, the rejection of this man, this man of peace riding on a donkey, wasn't just going to change history in 40 years, it was going to change history forever. Jesus knew the consequence of the world rejecting him. I wonder how much destruction he saw beyond the temple. 
How many nations did he see at war? How many Stalins and Hitlers did he see emerge? How many genocides because there'd be no peace for the nations? How many homicides because there'd be no peace for people? And how many suicides because there'd be no peace for people's hearts? How much racial hatred? Fighting under the banner of religion using his name to kill people. How much injustice was going to come on the world because of this moment? You see, too often we get lost in patriotism and we forget that Jesus came for the entire world. Every person, every nation, every friend, every enemy. Jesus' tears are not just for Jerusalem, they're for Rome and Babylon, Berlin. Not just for Gettysburg, but for Hiroshima. The tears of Jesus are rarely mentioned in Scripture. He wept over a friend that had died, by the way, at this exact spot, on this exact mountain. Lazarus lived in Bethany. This is where Jesus was. And now he weeps over a nation that actually has died. He called both of them out of their tombs. Lazarus, come out, and he came out. But when he called Jerusalem out of their tomb, he didn't come out. The world rejected its Savior, and Jesus knew what that meant. He knew about our world today. A world that's on the brink of falling apart. A world that knows so little of the peace that Jesus brought to it. That's where Jesus is on this Palm Sunday. He's here to show us that there's a dark secret to love. A secret that only suffering can reveal. That if we live long enough and we love hard enough, our heart will be broken. Isaiah foretold that the Messiah, Jesus, would live among us as a broken-hearted man full of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Jesus came to show us that some things can only be developed through suffering. Things like character and compassion. There's a communion that occurs with Jesus in the middle of suffering. We join him in the tears and he draws us close, holds us tight, and gives us his peace. Through his tears, I believe Jesus looked to see you and me. You see, he came to call us out of our tomb, too. Jesus called and Lazarus came out. He called and Jerusalem did not. Jesus is calling you and me right now. Are you praising him or rejecting him? Crowning him or killing him? Are your hands open in worship or clenched in a fist? Every time Jesus arrives, he forces a decision. The entire Easter story is about God calling us out of our tomb, the death that we deserve, and inviting us into a life that we don't. I believe that Jesus, on that road to Jerusalem, looked into the future and he saw you and me. And his eyes were full of tears. Are his tears for you tears of sorrow 
were tears of joy. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you took that trip into Jerusalem that day. That you came to save a world, but the world rejected you. But for those who believe, you completed them. You paid the price for everybody. You went to the cross. We're going to study that next week. You died on the cross. You resurrected. You overcame death in our place, and you offer it free to us. God, I know your heart breaks when people reject you. I know your heart breaks when they don't understand who you are. They don't understand that the prophets said so many things about you and every one of them became true. They don't understand the future that's in front of them, even though you've told us. So God, on this day, for each person here, each person that hears my voice, each person that's learning, trying to connect with you, would you just reveal to them how much you love them? Would you reveal to them that you would go through all this if it only saved them alone? God, it is tragic that you went through what you went through and people still rejected you. And I know it grieves your heart more than ours. But God, let that not happen in this place. Let this be a place where your name is lifted up, where praises go up and where Satan flees. Let this be a place where people welcome their Lord every Sunday, where people move in their hearts. Let this be a place where we love for you to shine light on us and to expose what we need to change because we want to be just like you. Let this be a place where we step in faith and declare that you are our king and we crown you with praises and we surrender to you from the depths of our heart. Be with us, God, as we go through this incredible week coming up, Passion Week. God, I pray for our nation this week. I pray for our nation over Easter. God, please don't let the spiritual fervor die. Keep our hearts towards home. Whether we're in church, whether we're at home, whether we're online, God, please draw near to us as we draw near to you. We love you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.